VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? I just think about looking up at the moon at night and seeing like city lights on the moon and how <laughs> like how inspirational that would be. I would just it would make me like so proud to be a human. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. I am your host Danny Fortson, thank you for tuning in. It's a big week out here, y'all. New president, Trump is gone. Wow. That was a really insane four years. Uh, And as you all know, I'm very happy to see the back of Trump. Uh, And who knows, if impeachment gets through the Senate, he may be barred from holding office ever again. We live in hope. But I gotta say that since he was deplatformed, chucked off Twitter... My Twitter feed is just a vastly different experience. And I don't know if any of you feel the same way, but um, I didn't really realize how much one person, even if they were the President of the United States, could influence the conversations I saw and on occasion took part in on social media. It's just really um, quite extraordinary. Uh, And I guess I shouldn't be surprised given that by the end he was tweeting an average of 35 times a day. Yes, 35 times. But his removal and just the subsequent reduction of anger and vitriol and misinformation and infighting that I've seen just in my feed, this may be different obviously for other people, has just gone down markedly. So you can debate ad nauseum about Twitter's decision to silence the president and it's a very tough issue. Not to be both sidesy, but I can see both sides of it. But the results are very stark. And it will no doubt give fodder to both sides, you know, in Congress about big tech's power and what to do about it. But I digress. We have a show to do, after all. And because these are momentous times, we have another double episode for you. So first up, uh, I'm bringing on Eric Goldman, who is a professor at Santa Clara University and the co-director of the High Tech Law Institute there at the university. And I want to bring him on to talk about just what we can expect in terms of big tech regulation under the Biden regime, and then to explore a second totally separate question, which is, you know, what should be done to cure the ills that the industry brings about. So hopefully there's some overlap between what he expects and what should happen. But I think you guys will enjoy that. And then we dive into some serious techno-optimism and crystal ball gazing with Eli Durado, who is an economist at Utah State's Center for Growth and Opportunity 
And Dorado's not your typical economist, don't worry, I promise, because he spends his time thinking about what are the big technological leaps that will really catapult us forward, catapult the economy forward and society really. And he wrote a fascinating look around the turn of the year into what he sees as the next decade of tech innovations and everything from biotech to space travel to computing and transport, kind of across the spectrum really. And so I bring him on because I just wanted to take a tour with him really to see you know, what may come to pass in this new decade upon which we are embarking. So. I think you'll really enjoy that. And like I said, it's it's fundamentally an optimistic conversation, which I feel, you know, just given the times, it's a good feeling to go with right now. So we're just going to go with that, especially after these last crazy four years. So I think you're really going to like that conversation as well. It'll just give you some things that certainly I hadn't thought about in terms of what may be coming down the pike. And we're going to get to that. But first, I'm bringing on, as we said, Eric Goldman of Santa Clara University. So we'll get to that right now now. Enjoy. Big day. Inauguration. The end of an era, beginning of a new one. Yeah, I think many people have been waiting for this day to come. So my Facebook feed is just filled with many joyful posts. Indeed. That is interesting in and of itself. Your Facebook feed is filled with joyous posts. Some people I know, their Facebook feeds will be filled with the opposite. (laughs) Yeah. Now, over the years, I found that it was difficult to continue to have civil conversations with some of the Trumpsters in my Facebook feed. Mm. So either they have uh, laid low or uh, we're no longer connected. Well, exactly. And this is kind of why I wanted to have you on. So we have a new, we have the Biden administration, day one. And obviously... There's a lot of talk about, especially given the events of the past week, the, you know, the what happened at the Capitol and kind of all the events that led up to that and social media's role in that. And so here we are, day one of the new regime. And I have a couple very simple questions. What should change and what do you think will change in terms of how we regulate social media? Well, um, let's talk about what will change. Uh, The short answer is we don't know. And the reason why is that there's still some partisan gridlock that is uh, slowing down the ability to come up with a compromise or bipartisan solution. In general, the Democrats want social media to do more content regulation, and the Republicans want social media services to do less. And because they might agree that Section 230 is part of the problem and might target it, they might agree that, that they would like to see some reform, but they won't agree on what the details of that reform mm. are. And Section Section 230, just, I mean, my listeners, most of them will know what that is. It's just this immunity shield. That means that Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, et cetera, they are free of liability for what appears on their pages, what other people post on their pages. Right. It says that they can publish their party content and not be liable for it. And interestingly, I was talking to somebody else on this, and they were saying, you know, in the last session of Congress, as you say, you know, both sides of the aisle agree that Section 230 needs to be reformed in some way, form or fashion. And there were over 20 bills proposed from all sides of the spectrum, you know, that said, you know, let's reform this law. Obviously, none of them got passed. But do you think, especially now that you have a Democrat-controlled Congress as well as a presidency, that what we're going to end up getting is basically a Democratic-flavored overhaul of Section 230, i.e. there will be some, you know, some 
measure of accountability will be injected into the system, whether that be through fines or, or whatever it may be. Do you see that happening, or are you, or are you more skeptical? I am more skeptical that it's going to be as simple as that. I think that um, the Democrats are going to control the committee agenda, and so Democrat-supported bills will be the only ones that could get a committee hearing. However, to get through the Senate, it's going to be tricky, I think, for a Democratic-only bill. And there's possibly two reasons why. The details are still being hammered out, but the current uh, discussion is that there will be an equal number of Democrats and Republicans on the various committees. Um, in which case, uh, it may not be easy for a bill to emerge from a committee that doesn't uh, have bipartisan support. But even if it does, so long as the filibuster remains in place in the Senate, it means that in order to get a bill through the Senate, it would require, in practice, more than 50 votes that the Democrats have. So I think that there's still going to be a premium placed on bipartisan solutions. And that's going to force the members of Congress to work together to think about reform to social media or Section 230, even though the Democrats are nominally in control of the agenda. And could you just talk for a moment about Section 230? You know, how important is it? And getting to the should question, should it be reformed in your view? Section 230 is critical to the Internet that we know and love. If you think about the services that we use on a daily basis or even an hourly basis, that can include social media, but it can also include Wikipedia, includes the Zoom services that we're using right now, and uh, it includes sites like Amazon's Marketplace. All these things that we're doing on a, on a daily basis, they all depend critically on Section 230 to work the way that we expect them to. So Section 230 reform puts in play all of the things that we love best about the internet. It potentially jeopardizes the way that the internet currently functions. And so if we reform it, there's a, a substantial risk that the internet will just look different. And honestly, I think it won't function in a way that we actually consider to be uh, all that helpful to us. So when you ask what uh, reforms of Section 230 I favor, I think the real question I am always struck by is what problem are we trying to solve? And if we're not precise about that problem, we're not going to be precise with the solutions. And it's my own view that many of the problems that people are complaining about actually are better handled by Section 230 as currently constituted than if it were reformed. How do you mean? Well, so, for example, uh, the Democrats want more uh, content moderation and the Republicans want less. There's no way to come up with a solution for Internet companies that pleases all sides. Yeah. But Section 230 allows Internet services to dial up or down their content moderation in order to best cater to their audience. So knowing that they're never going to make everyone happy, Section 230 still gives them the control to figure out what works best without facing liability for the decisions that they make or don't make. And without facing liability, every time they recalibrate their dial for someone saying, now that you've changed the rules, now you've created this new exposure. So Section 230 is actually what enables the Internet services to do the kind of content moderation that we want, knowing that we're never all going to be happy with their decisions. And do you have a sense, because I mean, you know, from where you sit, you know, as a law professor and looking at this in the kind of broader context, do you see this as a, you know, January 6th, the insurrection at the Capitol as a kind of Lehman Brothers moment? And I understand, taking what you just said, that you think perhaps Section 230 should not be touched, but it does feel like that might be like a moment after, you know, that catalyzes a rare moment of, okay, every both sides of the aisle, let's come together in a way that actually, that we haven't been able to in the past, and let's 
pass some reform, whether it's Section 230 or something else of social media? Yeah, there's no doubt that uh, the activities in the Capitol have spurred a greater motivation to find what caused this. How did this happen? And how can we prevent something like this from happening again? And no doubt that among the purported culprits are social media that allowed uh, the insurrectionists to communicate with each other and possibly to become radicalized more than they would have otherwise. So I do think that the events of January 6th posed even greater danger for the future of the internet because it gives greater license to the politicians to blame the internet for the problem. Just a couple of observations though. Mm. Uh, First is of course that insurrectionists have organized throughout uh, our country's history and throughout human history uh, well before social media ever existed. So it's not that social media newly created a uh, (laughs) ability to uh, organize this storming the capital moment. And when we look at what causes radicalization, there's been some really powerful suggestions that the real source of the radicalization comes from the combination of our government systematically lying to us for the last four years, plus the amplification of lies on broadcast stations like Fox News. And so if we target social media for the correction, we may very well be disappointed because so long as we still have Mm. governments telling us misstatements and Fox News amplifying them, we're still going to have the people who are going to believe those statements and are still going to become ratified by them. We've, we've talked about this a little bit before, not on the podcast, but when you talk about that, that um, the work around, you know, trying to find the kind of the spark that lit the flame, where does that come from when you're talking about it coming from Fox News or, or you know, the, the kind of conservative media infrastructure? Well, Fox News in particular is an interesting case because... Uh, Fox News has a lot of viewership. Um, and I believe, mm. in fact, Tucker Carlson has been uh, the most watched uh, television host on a uh, news channel for much of last year. And uh, yet Fox News tells a story, at least in court, that they never try to tell the truth. That's not their mission. Their mission is to entertain their viewers. And then they tell courts that viewers are smart enough to be able to figure out that they're being entertained and not educated and will therefore be able to process the information accordingly. But uh, we all know that Fox News is treated as truth by many of its viewers. And in fact, we've seen some really crazy activity where people still believe that Q is gonna come and rescue the country. And they're living in an alternative world where the facts are just clearly provably wrong, and yet they're still embracing them. And so we we don't really have a good uh, mechanism to reconcile the fact that Fox News on the one hand, says we're not trying to to be factual, we're just entertainment. And the fact that people are interpreting their information as factual Mm. um, and behaving accordingly. So I have magical powers and tomorrow I make you the czar, the technology czar of America. You've just been sworn in by Joe Biden. Congratulations. Yeah, and that's a good tip to all my country members to uh, flee, <laughs> go somewhere else. <laughs> the crazies have taken over again. Um, what is job one for you when you look at the landscape today? I mean, the thing that strikes me is just this kind of the death of shared truth, which is kind of what you're just talking about. You know, how everybody just, you can't even agree on the facts. So therefore, you know, the world is very a very different place on a factual basis for one person versus another. I don't know if that would be the, f- the first place you would go and how you would attack that, but what do you as Texar do to kind of get us back to a better place? 
Yeah, I think there's a couple of things that I would uh, prioritize. And it really does start with the government committing itself to telling the truth. And this can include on technology matters or matters of science. We've had some real undermining of the citizens' confidence that the government was publishing information that was in uh, the best interest of science or the truth Mm. as opposed to a political message. And I think we need to rehabilitate that. And that's something that can be done both from a government operation standpoint, but also from a technology standpoint, creating appropriate channels for the data to be available, to be reviewable, and to be confirmed as trustworthy. I think that then the next piece is is what you were talking about with the shared truth. There's no question that the future of our country depends on us being able to critically discern between people who are telling us the truth, uh, people who are not, people who are credible, and people who are not. And that's a skill that can be taught. It actually is mm. something that we, we need to be taught. We just, it's not intrinsic to us. We don't learn it uh, just through, you know, the natural growth of our uh, maturity. We actually have to get some help to understand how to do that. And that's something that I haven't seen uh, the federal government really prioritize. So I think the federal government has a role to play to helping teach people how to be better consumers of information. If we can do that, then we might be able to systematically fix the rooting of misinformation in our society by people who would be able to recognize that they're being lied to, but simply lack the tools to be able to to realize it. So a nationwide internet literacy program. We really need that. And honestly, I think that the next generation, the millennials got some of it, the Gen Z community, I think has gotten more of it. I think that we are doing a better job. I think that schools have recognized that, but I don't think that's even nationally. I think that we're seeing uh, some red state, blue state dichotomy mm. about even how they teach media literacy, how they teach respect for credible sources of information. And if the federal government doesn't help provide some support for that, it's possible we'll have this systemic long-term dichotomy between red states and blue states because of the differences in how they teach media literacy. And uh, I mean, arguably, just thinking about this, uh, isn't that kind of what at least a piece of this, kind of what Facebook and Twitter started to do, especially in this last six months or so, of just labeling content, being like, you know, there is no evidence for this electoral fraud. Go to this website and understand why. You know, it does feel like that just simple steps like that, which in themselves are quite controversial these days, but that does feel like perhaps a baby step toward that. I think it's a great step. And if you were talking to me 25 years ago, I would have been convinced that that was the only step necessary to do labeling and counter speech to help um, contextualize information would be enough for the marketplace of ideas to sort it out. But I think that the marketplace of ideas breaks down when there isn't sufficient media literacy. And so we have tons of evidence that suggests that uh, labels can actually do things like backfire mm-hmm. um, or get, be counterproductive to helping people recognize and distinguish uh, truthful information from false information. And so I think that the labeling, the counter speech are essential tools in the toolkit, but if they're not coupled with media literacy, I don't know that we're gonna get as far as we need to. Well, as techs are, you have your work cut out. (laughs) As techs are, I've already driven most of the people out of the country, so maybe it's a much smaller problem. So that was Eric Goldman, and now, as promised, we'll bring on Eli Dorado of Utah State's Center for Growth and Opportunity to talk about the next decade of tech innovations. What is going to happen? How is our world going to change? And we'll get to that right now. 
So I read your voluminous piece you wrote kind of the end of the year and kind of casting the world forward over this next decade. And there's a whole bunch of interesting stuff there. And given the state of the world, I thought a bit of techno optimism is not a bad thing. So we can just start with one of my personal favorite topics, which is the idea of longevity, you know, out here people, um, some people are obsessed with the idea of living forever, or if not forever, a very, very long time. And some of the things that you are seeing out there that are getting you excited. Yeah, sure. So I mean, out in Silicon Valley, of course, the uh, the, the trope is the, the blood boy, right? Uh, the, the kid that the, that the billionaire yes. hires to give him his, his young blood. And so, you know, what's interesting about that is that that is not, it's not completely, um, you know, out of touch with where the science was a few years ago, right? So the, there's this lab at Berkeley called the Comboy Lab, and they had been studying heterochronic parabiosis for many years, right? Where they they would basically stitch together the circulatory system of a, a young rat and an old rat. And the uh, the old rat would get younger and the uh, young rat would get older by sharing a circulatory system. So that kind of led to this idea of like, well, what's in the blood? And what, what what's interesting about um, the experiments that they did this year in 2020 that they published is that it shows that it's not something in the young blood that is making the is giving giving the rejuvenating effect to the old one. It right. is rather that being able to like dilute some harmful factors out of the the old blood actually seems to reset or or change the equilibrium such that mm. it, you know there's it, it destroys some feedback loops that maybe are making us express older phenotypes. And so what's really interesting to me about this is that, that the pathway to market on something like this is potentially very very short because the the sort of procedure of you know messing around with someone's blood plasma, taking it out, diluting it, uh, replacing it with something else, that is already FDA approved for a number of conditions. Uh, you know, you can't under current law go out and like say advertise like I am gonna you know make you younger and yeah come to our clinic and turn the clock back five years or whatever exactly. So you can't make these claims, but if you're a doctor, you can prescribe this to somebody and it could be done today uh, with with very inexpensive equipment. So you know, I, my sort of view is like someone's gonna try. There have this has already been done actually on humans. Uh, late last year, uh, some humans in Russia were like, "Hey, like let's let's do it to ourselves." And they they seem to have done it. They say they say they feel great. You know, I I think it's only a matter of time until we start to see this being offered by some sort of business that's trying to explicitly sort of promote anti aging, though without you know wink wink without actually you know maybe uh, crossing whatever line the FDA sets for for marketing. Um, and you wrote in the piece that you think I can't remember the the exact verbiage, but I think it's therapeutic plasma treatment or whatever it may be. Do you think we could see a clinic set up this year to do that? Yeah, like somebody like so. There's already the startup Ambrosia, right? I've spoken to those to the Ambrosia guys. Yeah. yeah, it's actually been a couple of years since I spoke to them. I don't know how what progress they've made, if any. But well, yes. so so like the FDA issued a statement saying this is not proven. This is not a proven therapy, but they didn't stop them, right? And so I think it, I think it would be kind of the same ballpark where it's 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 legal to do. Somebody's going to do it, and um, it isn't proven. It hasn't been through clinical trials in humans for this purpose. But, you know, we have a long history in the U.S. of prescribing treatments off-label. And, you know, if you can find a doctor, a medical doctor that is willing to prescribe this for you, you can have it done to you. 
So, uh, so I think it's very, very possible that someone will set up a clinic to try to offer this, walking right up to the edge of what's, of what's legal on, on this. Right. And do we have a sense, I mean, because this has been what the Convoy Lab has done is in, is in rats or mice or whatever. Were they able to quantify what basically, you know, getting the pollutants out of the old blood did in terms of these animals' bodies or their, you know, age, as it were? You know, they are not believers in sort of the, the other thing I talk about in the post, which is like some of these uh, epigenetic clocks. So they yeah. did not do uh, that assessment. What they did was they looked at, in the first experiment that they published, they looked at germ tissues. So they looked at three different kinds of germ layer tissues and uh, sort of assessed the level of rejuvenation in those germ tissues. And they found that it, it did do that. And then in the second one, it was they were focused on the brain and on neural inflammation and, and things like that. So th- I don't think we've seen, you know, sort of a... Uh, a study of like, well, if you combine this with a sort of an epigenetic clock, what kind of what kind of benefit does it give you? Right. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Um, and just before we go any further, can you just say kind of who you are and what you do? Like where, where are you coming at this kind of vision of the future that you lay out here? Where are you coming at it from? Yeah, sure. So I'm an economist by training. I work at the Center for Growth and Opportunity at Utah State University, where basically I study how we can get the economy to grow faster, uh, how we can uh, increase productivity growth, and so on. So my interest in all of this is figuring out where the possibilities for growth, and then what are the obstacles to those possibilities, and how do we how do we on a policy level clear away those obstacles so that we can grow a lot faster. And one of the interesting things is that uh, a number of economists don't believe there is room for significant growth again, right? There's Robert Gordon, Dietrich Bolrath, et cetera, who basically argue, you know, the economy is basically fully grown. We've picked all the low-hanging fruit. There's nothing left. And is that kind of orthodoxy in the economics realm that kind of, you know, the industrial revolution has passed. We've kind of maximized all the different bits of the economy that we can maximize. And now it's just kind of eking out little bits of growth going forward. I don't think it's orthodoxy. I think most economists don't even think about this question at all. And, you know, the ones who do, I think, are split on it. But the um, the ones who do think that, you know, we've picked the low-hanging fruit, 
you know, do have adherents who, you know, <laughs> that I, I think the case is clearly wrong. There's, there's a lot of future possible growth and we haven't, we haven't gotten really close to, to where we, we could get in the long run. I think basically we've stagnated in, in four key areas, right? And it's health, housing, energy, and transportation. Mm. And if you could accelerate innovation and productivity in those four sectors, you would massively increase economic growth. You know, that's kind of where technology, you know, I, I would love for it to focus. The downside is those are highly regulated sectors. They're very hard to iterate rapidly. You can't move fast and break things. And a lot of, you know, innovators and entrepreneurs, therefore, are working in the less regulated space of, right. you know, moving bits around and, you know, where there's there's First Amendment protections and very few barriers. So my sort of fundamental conviction is, you know, we need to be doing more in highly regulated spaces to move the economy forward. And on the idea of, again, speaking out here, on the idea of longevity, increasing kind of lifespan, increasing what everybody talks about out here, health span, that does seem, if you can figure out a way to do it, and it seems like such a massive undertaking, but the idea of, you know, at 65, you don't necessarily have to retire. You can then go on to a different career and you can still work productively till you're 75 or 85 or whatever it may be. It feels at once kind of unfathomable and not even worth trying, but also alluring if it actually, if you can make that happen. The prize is potentially very big. Uh, you know, we spend something like, 18%, almost 18% of GDP on healthcare. Mm. And, you know, a, quite a lot of that is chronic disease and age-related chronic disease. If you can sort of compress all of that into the last six months of your life or the, you know, the last three months of your life, you know, whenever, whenever that is. Whenever the wheels really fall off, basically. Yeah, yeah. They all <laughs> fall off at once. And that's, it's a huge, like, social cost savings. I mean, it, if you think about how healthcare has divided our country <laughs> politically, it just takes that issue away. It, it, the reason it's so divisive is because it is 18% of GDP. And if you could reduce it, it would be incredible. I, you know, I think that the the improvements will be incremental, you know, over time. But over a long enough period of time, it is possible we really could crack a big chunk of this aging problem, and you know, potentially extend the lifespan, you know, beyond 110, 120 years, you know, which is sort of the the ceiling right now. Right. And what is a DNA clock? So uh, a methylation clock, DNA methylation clock, is a tool that. Uh, biochemists are using to sort of assess how biologically old an organism, especially a human, is. And they, they basically look at sort of changes, methyl groups being added to certain bases on, on your DNA. And from this process, they can infer how old you are with uh, some statistical accuracy. But, but of course, you don't want a one-to-one -one correlation with chronological age because then you just you wouldn't be predicting biological age but they basically there's a number of different techniques that's still widely debated what's the best one but they're able to sort of create a, a sort of a metric for how biologically old you are and what's interesting about this is that we've seen some treatments that seem to turn back the clock a little bit um, there was one study where the researchers were able to rejuvenate the thymus in 50 and 60 year old uh, human males through a protocol where they gave a uh, human ho growth hormone, a few other things, vitamin D, zinc, uh, metformin, and uh, maybe a, a couple other ingredients in the cocktail, but all, all like relatively safe, well understood chemicals. And uh, you know, I think a year of being on this cocktail reduced epigenetic age by about two and a half years. So you turn back the clock uh, by two and a half years by being on this cocktail. Who did that? Who did that study? 
The the lead author is uh, Greg Faye. It, it was a Steve Horvath's lab, maybe. Was the point to see if you can literally turn back the clock on your body? Uh, yes, that was the point. So, I mean, and, the, and, you know, the thymus is a good target for that because so much of aging seems to be related to immune system function. And by rejuvenating the thymus, the thymus is an organ that, you know, starts out very thymusy, and over the course of your life, it turns into a lump of fat. So it just gradually becomes a lump of fat. And by giving it these, uh, this cocktail, you know, they're able to decrease the fat fraction of the thymus, which then produces more and, and better T cells that improve the immune system and, and prevent a whole, whole bunch of diseases. The other thing that you brought up, which I thought was interesting, was this idea that the Apple Watch, for example could in many ways kind of replace your primary care doctor or at least the functions of your primary care doctor um, in the not too distant future because they keep coming out with different monitoring functions, whether it's, you know, blood pressure or whatever it may be, oxygen in your blood. Do you see that as actually a real possibility? Yeah, I do. I think it's, um, I I noticed this, you know, of course, the Apple Watch, but iPhone or whatever, they they come out with new sensors every year or a a new capability. And so with the, with the watch in particular, you know, if, if you're getting a new capability every year and you take that forward about 10 years, that's 10 more data points that you have continuous monitoring on. We don't know exactly what capabilities will get added, but we, every once in a while, people will turn up a, a patent that Apple has on like, you know, yeah. measuring, blood, measuring blood pressure without a blood pressure cuff, right? Like, yeah. like being, able, <laughs> being able to do that with your watch. So I assume at some point that will happen. And, you know, the, the bar to replace a lot of primary care is not that high, right? Like if you go to the doctor and, and you know, you go to have a primary care appointment, they check your vitals, ask you a few questions. It's not, it's not that invasive or in-depth, right? And that could mostly be replaced uh, by a watch. And then if you do have an issue and you need to go see the doctor, you have all this data, right? So like <laughs> the, the diagnosis could be more rapid, more certain, and just better. So I think it could, it could replace a big chunk of primary care, probably not, not all of it, and get you to the specialist you need to see more quickly. So that's kind of human health, which is one of the four kind of areas you talked about. And the only other thing I'd say on that is like, there's all these technological progress that's happening, but also just the fact that, um, which seems the most important is we're all fat, have terrible diets and we don't exercise. So <laughs> it does feel yeah. like <laughs> yeah. that's, that's the, and, the big and, force pushing against all of these advances. And so much of longevity is tied up with metabolic health. So that's kind of on you, you know, like, like there are drugs like metformin that can make you more insulin sensitive, let's say, uh, and people tout that as a longevity drug. It may have some benefit in, in healthy humans, but I think it's pretty, pretty minimal. That's on you just to, you know, eat healthy, uh, you know, occasionally maybe uh, intermittent fast so that you're more insulin sensitive and, and make sure you get some exercise. There's a couple of the, uh, of these other kind of areas that you touched on that I found really interesting. One of course is electric cars. So and we've spoken with people on this podcast various times and said, you know, this is this is going to be the year or it's going to be next year, but that we're we're approaching a point where the big switch is going to happen and you know the the death of the internal combustion engine is on the horizon. Yeah, I I agree. I don't know if it's this year or or next year, but it, I think it will happen suddenly because electric cars they're just better, right? So they they are better mm-hmm. than the in- internal combustion engine cars. They have fewer moving parts, their maintenance is easier, the, the fuel is cheaper in terms of, you know, what is it, how much does it cost you to go a certain distance? 
the total cost of ownership is, is lower. They're kind of nicer to drive. They have like more low end torque, like you can get off the off the line quicker, more, more acceleration. The main thing that people use cars for, right, driving like to and from work, you can charge every night at home and you never have to stop for gas. So it's even like more convenient. I, I think, you know, a big chunk of the, the cost of, the, of an electric car is still the battery. Like there's still a need for battery technology to improve and for costs to come down as much as possible. But I think that the shift is is very well on the way in early days still. But I see it as pretty much inevitable. And I think that like the sort of the 2035 date that some politicians and stuff is, are talking about in terms of a phase out of combustion engine vehicles is, is absurd, right? It's going to happen well before then. In the framing of, you know, where we started out of this economic growth, um, which of course means more prosperity and people in a better place, et cetera. Why does this matter? So as an, as an, uh, as an economist, you know, you can look at GDP numbers. But you can also have a slightly broader concept of economic growth that includes welfare, that includes things like environmental benefit. And I think that electric cars in particular matters a lot from the environmental benefit standpoint, uh, you know, doing something about climate change, uh, assuming that the, the grid also greens and becomes less fossil fuel dependent, that electric cars could be could play a significant role there. I mean, the other ways that it improves GDP is so first of all, simply like the, the hedonic adjustment that we do in, you know, if, if they actually are better cars, then that that matters from a real GDP perspective. And then the, the third way is, I think, in, in terms of air pollution sort of the health effects of air pollution are significant and have not been properly grappled with. And by reducing health pollution, we're basically going to be solving a bunch of mystery diseases and a bunch of, you know, really yeah. unfortunate things. And that's, you know, that could show up as better health outcomes as well. Well, I will say that uh, I've traveled to China for a few different times for work, and it's always in a big city like Shanghai or something. And, you know, you never see the sun. And I have allergies yeah. and I just come back and my system is all just messed up. And I know that urban smog is a serious issue there. And it does feel like if, you know, not with a snap of the fingers, but if very quickly you can kind of get rid of all these cars belching this smoke, then all of a sudden it's a very different thing. And as you say, there there would be an uplift, I guess. At least you would transfer a lot of economic activity to fixing health problems to doing other stuff. Yeah, that's exactly right. And one thing that people get wrong about the the air pollution, it's not just the visible stuff that's that's problematic. Yeah. It's actually the finer particles. So the the more <laughs> the finer the particles there are, the more damaging it is. The deeper it gets into your lungs, the more serious the health problems it causes. I mean, we we've gotten rid of like the visible stuff because it's ugly and people know to complain about it, but there's still a lot of fine particles out there. Yeah. And another area that you touch on, which I think is is really fascinating because we're starting to see some of this bear out, is machine learning actually becoming quite useful and extremely powerful. And we're seeing this both in this kind of crossover between biotech and biology and algorithms and how those can meld to create some incredible results, but also just what computers are able to do and the problems they're able to solve. Uh, where are you looking at there in terms of machine learning and its evolution? What I'm looking at is superhuman performance on a non-toy problem. I mean, there's a lot of uses of machine learning. Of course, like lots of the products we use online, Facebook, et cetera, like use machine yeah. learning to classify things, categorize things. It's not a huge value add, It's but it's yeah. some value add. And it is, you know, basically approaching human levels, but probably not superhuman levels of performance. You know, something like uh, AlphaZero, where it's playing chess or Go better than any human 
thing, like that's great, but it's a game. So it's quite literally a game. What really interests me is Alpha Fold, the sort of application to protein folding that oh, DeepMind. Oh, Google's uh, Deep DeepMind. Yeah. Program, right? Yeah, Google's DeepMind program that, that is able to fold proteins far better than, of course, humans can't fold proteins at all, but far better yeah. than any other algorithm and and sort of very close performance to actual like experimental lab-based methods of X-ray crystallography or whatever they, yeah. they use to to do this. So extremely high performance AI capability or machine learning capability. And so that's very interesting to me because it's proof of like this actually could add significant value. And so I think I think biology is probably the place where we're going to see this bear fruit the quickest. Um, this isn't the first time that DeepMind had entered the, sort of the contest that they that they did. They entered two years ago. And what was interesting is they disclosed all the methods that they used to the other researchers. And those researchers then started like taking machine learning and applying it in their uh, in their yeah. methods. So, so this time around, DeepMind was not the only team that had machine learning involved. Of course, they, they crushed everybody else still, but most of the other teams are starting to adopt it. And so, you know, using these machine learning techniques in something like biology, where the the scope for you know real meaningful like real world benefit is is very high, and also the scope for superhuman performance is really high. Like that's the most exciting application to me. Because what it would do for human productivity, or again, this idea that, you know, it'll kind of solve problems like cancer, for example, make it easier to figure out how to attack these things. Yeah, I think DeepMind's uh, AlphaFold in particular, I mean, that's going to make it possible to identify drug candidates for all kinds of diseases that we don't currently have a way of reasoning about what, what molecules might right. work, right? That's enormous. But um you know, sort of the idea of drug discovery. Drugs <laughs> drugs are one of the most efficient ways we have to <laughs> treat people. You know, people complain about the high cost of prescription drugs, but it's a very small, uh, you know, like 10% or so of national health expenditures. Much more expensive to go to the hospital, much more yeah. expensive to be seen by a human doctor. And so, you know, drug discovery is, is really, really promising in terms of being a, uh, a cheap way of addressing a lot of, of health problems. And if you combine it with machine learning based diagnosis and analysis and proteomics and like examining your blood to see what markers of disease are there and then custom designing a treatment regimen just for you, that's something like a machine learning algorithm could eventually do. And yeah. you know, it would make it make a pretty big difference in quality of life and, and welfare. Just listening to you talk, it occurred to me, why are you so deep in the weeds on all of this technology stuff because whenever i speak to economists it's these type of uh technological advancements and whatnot it certainly doesn't feel front of mind it might not even be back of mind it's more about kind of just you know these broader macroeconomic forces that are at work does what you do unique in your field or relatively uh, unique look i think yeah i think economists don't don't usually do this right and, and i went to I went to grad school to get my PhD in economics because I thought I wanted to be an economics professor. And along yeah. the way, I said, no, no, I don't want to actually do that. And, uh, you know, very fortunate, been able to carve out this other niche in which I can I can do this. I've always loved technology broadly. I've always been interested in it and taking sort of the, the skill set or the, the way of thinking from economics and applying it to that, that field of study. It just always seemed very natural to me. 
and it's just you know the kind of thing uh, I, I I would do for fun in my free time anyway, and right. somebody pays me for it, so it's like it's pretty <laughs> pretty 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 amazing. One of the other areas which we've also done a lot on in the paper and on the podcast, whatever, is around space. And I'm sure you've seen Jeff Bezos's gave this presentation. I think it was last year around his vision for you know, colonizing space, these big floating structures, and it's all just wonderful. And this is the future because we're, we have limited time left on this planet, just given how extractive we are and how we go about living and existing here. How do you see this playing out in terms of, I mean, you talk a lot about SpaceX, if you could just maybe lay out kind of how you see that going and what it all means. Sure. Yeah. I think that the element that most people are not talking enough about is Starship. SpaceX is like sort of next generation vehicle capable of lifting 150 tons to orbit. Relative to what right now? Well, like um, a Falcon 9, which is like SpaceX's current, you know, workhorse vehicle, the, the most commonly launched rocket now uh, in the world. It's, it's something, you know, in a reasonable configuration, it's like 15 tons. Gotcha. So 15, 16 tons. So, so 10 times the lifting capability per launch. But they're also talking about getting the launch cost down with Starship. So it's it's just designed from the ground up to be completely reusable, not just the booster stage. It's using um, materials that are easy to manufacture with, stainless steel, alloys, yeah. and so on. It's using, as fuel, it's using liquid methane instead of you know RP-1 rocket fuel that is probably 10 times the price. So this is all, you know, it's all being designed to come together to basically be able to launch into orbit for, you know, maybe an order of mag- or two orders of magnitude less per kilogram than we're talking about today, than anybody's able to do today, which is just phenomenal. And I think, you know, the other even crazier element of, of Starship is that they're designing it to be refueled in space. So normally, if you want to send a Tesla Roadster to Mars, let's say, yeah. hypothetically, right? You you can't have very much other cargo in the payload because, you know, that 16-ish tons that in an expendable configuration, let's say Falcon 9 can do 20 tons to, to orbit, but it can probably only do four tons to Mars. The, the payload amount goes down if you're going, you know, further right. out of the gravity well, right? And so that's not the case if you can refuel on orbit. You can refuel, you know, take your 150 tons, take it to low Earth orbit, refuel, and yeah. then you can take that same 150 tons anywhere in the solar system on that refueling. Because you you don't have to expend so much energy escaping Earth's gravity, basically. Basically, yeah. Uh, you know, This is usually talked about in terms of delta V, right? Mm-hmm. The, the change in velocity that you need. And most of the change in velocity comes out of coming you know, from Earth to low Earth orbit. If you can do that twice, then you can get almost anywhere in the solar system. It's just an astounding capability. You know, Elon's talking about we're going to produce these for five millions a pop every 72 hours. And, you know, we're going to be able to launch it fully burdened launch cost at a high rate of one point five million dollars per launch, which is I mean, just it's just it's unfathomable. And there's a lot of reason to doubt Elon's schedule and to, to, you know, sort of like apply sort of like an adjustment factor to that. But, you know, generally, there doesn't seem to be a showstopper here if they're serious, which, which they are. And that, you know, 100x, 200x reduction in launch costs is going to be remarkable for what enables in space. Part of what SpaceX is doing also is, is creating this constellation, uh, satellite constellation in orbit called mm. Starlink that is itself like orders of magnitude 
bigger than all the other satellites humans have ever launched in human history. <laughs> These are internet beaming s- satellites. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, they're different than the sort of the traditional geostationary satellites that you may have used in the past, where there's extremely high latency. By placing it in low Earth orbit and making a constellation of them, that basically no matter where you point your, your antenna in the sky, there's going to be a, a satellite there. Yeah, it's like um, 40,000 is there, they're going to put up there, right? Yeah, 42,000 is the ultimate size of the constellation and, and phases that they're not even working on yet. Yeah. But uh, I think there's about a thousand satellites up right now, which is, I think, almost half of all satellites <laughs> in orbit right now are, are SpaceX satellites. It's just staggering the the scale and the revenue potential because SpaceX is operating right now off of you know revenue of something like two billion dollars a year. It's a private company; we don't know exactly, but um, the telecom business is so much bigger. And if they're if they're cornering you know two three percent of that market, they're going to have a you know. 30x increase in, in their budget to go do more more things. Do you have a view as to what that means in outer space? Because you do have Musk, you have Jeff Bezos, you have, you know, NASA, uh, you have the Chinese, everybody, there's like this race back to the moon, there's lots of talk about, okay, we are going to colonize the moon, because that is the logical next step. Do you think that is what happens first? Just trying to think of like, as we extend humanity beyond earth how that plays out and actually why is that a good thing if we're again going back to your framing of like economics and the human condition sure yeah so there's a lot (laughs) tied up in that question (laughs) um so in terms of you know in terms of what nasa is going to do in space right nasa does everything in space in partnership with somebody else right they don't um they have their own heavy lift rocket that's under development that's terrible it's going to be just a, a complete dog uh, and I, I think it's probably going to get canceled at some point. But, you know, I expect them to be very big customers of Starship and, you know, particularly sort of the Artemis missions, which are not designated right currently to use Starship. If those get migrated over to Starship, they could be they could increase the scale of the sort of colonization of the moon pretty significantly. You know, I think we could have like a permanent moon base by the end of the decade which is slower than what NASA is talking about now, but realistically, you know, it'll take a little while. And I just think like, I mean, space has always been to some extent about inspiration of what you can do. So, so there, so it may be that the moon, there's not an immediate payoff to going to the moon, but I just, I just think about looking up at the moon at night and seeing like city lights on the moon and how, <laughs> like how inspirational that would be. I just, I, it would make me like so proud to be a human um, <laughs> to, to be able to see that. Longer term, you know, going to the moon, you could imagine things like mining of helium-3, which is a very valuable fuel for fusion reactors. It's relatively rare on Earth. It's much more common on the moon. And that's actually like could be worth the export cost of going to the moon. You know, in terms of what we could do in orbit, I think, you know, communication satellites are the biggest industry for the foreseeable future. I think a lot of Earth sensing is set to explode with these Mm. lower launch costs. So you could imagine... And there are satellites, of course, that take photos of, of the ground from space right now. But I think by the end of the decade, something like live Google Earth is totally uh, within the realm of, of possibility right. that, you know, so you can get a live view of any space on the planet. And, you know, insurance being able to, like, assess damage, yeah. uh, whatever, in terms of human rights, being able to, like, assess, like, whether what these Chinese Uyghur camps look like. And so on, you know, like, and maybe not so, so long term, I think you also see, I think Elon will make a play to go to Mars to send a human mission. And that's interesting. I think, uh, you know, the payoff to humans going to Mars, 
uh, it's, it's probably not going to be, you know, exporting stuff from Mars back to Earth or anything like that, some <laughs> natural resources. But yeah. I just think uh, the number of problems that we have to solve to make that colony sort of self-sustaining, it's a, it gives focus to a bunch of technological problems that need to be overcome. And, that, you know, there, there will be pretty large spillovers from a company like SpaceX tackling a lot of those problems. It'll be like uh, Velcro 2.0. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, so so NASA NASA would uh, NASA would object to you uh, uh, being so uh, so flip about about all their spinoffs. They have a they have a spinoff site and the pretty impressive list of uh, of all the things that have, they've, we've gotten out of the space program. But yeah, we're going to need to solve a lot of problems. And, yeah, and that and, and that's generally you know a good thing. So uh, I should say one other thing that's interesting to me is the idea of there's certain things you could manufacture in space that you can't manufacture on earth because of uh, microgravity, you know, think about like structures that in the process of making them, they would collapse under the weight of their own gravity. Right. So this, this applies to certain pharmaceuticals, to semiconductors, to fiber optics, et cetera. And a lot of that could be worth the price of actually, you know, especially in a starship type situation where the launch is pretty cheap, you know, you send stuff up, you do that step of the manufacturing in space and you bring it down and that could be very much worth it. And that, you know, that increases our productive capabilities uh, in, in sort of those materials. And then lastly, I was just thinking as we're doing this Zoom, you talk about kind of the next steps in computing. You know, we started obviously with computers the size of a city block down to your desktop, down to your laptop, down to your phone. And then I'm curious, do you think it is like glasses are the next interface? I think we're going to find out, and I think I think every single company, every tech company in the in the valley, has one of these prototypes. You know, I've talked to some of them; they're deadly serious about it. They want to give it a, a good shot. You know, I sort of have mixed feelings about that. I don't want pop up notifications all the time, right? I, I like uh, <laughs> you know this sort of the idea of you know sort of calm technology, uh, technology that adapts to you, that understands the context, that understands like okay, now is a good time to interrupt Eli and tell him this thing. And so, you know, you're going to need like much smarter operating systems, much more context aware versions of Siri and Google Assistant and so on. If we can get there, I think it could be great, right? Much more um, pushing you the information that you need at exactly the right time in, you know, in sort of an unobtrusive way that doesn't distract you from the scene. Yeah, people are going to give a real try to that. And, uh, you know, we'll we'll see it, I think, in the next two to three years. So all this techno optimism. Is there anything that you're like, uh oh, <laughs> or this is worrying, or oh, this could go really wrong? And you know, we've talked to people about you know the idea of a killer AI, AGI, you know, kind of all of a sudden turning us into a subjugated race of humans, etc. I mean, I don't know if it's anything that sci-fi, but is there anything that you think about like, oh, this is something where we have to keep a close watch on or be quite circumspect when we're developing technology x i'm usually the kind of person that would push the button and make it make whatever (laughs) interesting thing happen happen like i'm not i'm not gonna not push the button you know i think it's interesting that a lot of the sort of like techno dystopians yeah they're really focused on information technology and i'm much more interested in the sort of the technology of atoms rather than the technology of bits The, the real world stuff that we're not doing, right, or that we haven't done in the last several decades. And, you know, my fear is that we won't properly execute on this, right? And things I look at are like permitting laws, right? So, (laughs) like, you you know, in terms of how long does it take you to get a permit, 
to now you uh, sound like an economist <laughs> <laughs> so so the danger is that you know as i think i wrote near the end of the piece that we have we have the ideas we have the basic scientific breakthroughs that we need we have you know the entrepreneurs that are willing to do it we have the venture capitalists that are willing to fund it we have the engineers that are willing to to work on the problem you know a lot of a lot of what we lack is like sort of like the the social urgency to get the problem done and and sort of the political mm. desire to support that and i would say that just given the state of the world right now and technology's evident role in that to the point you're saying that could be a break and you know maybe that's a necessary break but it definitely feels like it could be a break because i feel like everybody's having this moment of realization of like oh these technologies that we just kind of rolled out they're actually quite powerful and we didn't do enough to kind of think hard about you know not can we make it but should we make it or if we do make it how do we make it in a way that doesn't you know lead to the destruction of societies we know it <laughs> i mean i agree that like the internet has you know it's it's sort of shifted power in some you know very interesting and destabilizing ways but you know i think what comes back to me is how much we've stagnated in all these other areas mm. and how that that drives populism for example right like since 2005 total factor productivity which is the the stat i look at the most yeah. for assessing this it's grown at, at a rate of less than 0.2% per year, right? So which is less than 10% of where it was in the 1960s. So we've really stalled out on growth uh, in practice uh, in terms of like being able to bring these technology, like these technologies of the physical world to bring them to scale. And that creates sort of a zero sum economy. And that zero sum economy is what gives rise to a zero sum mindset, which is what's fueling, I think, in sort of a way that I can't prove. I think it's fueling a lot of populism and a lot of resentment. And just before I let you go, so when we were growing really fast, why were we? Like what changed aside from just, you know, the stagnation or like what gains did we make that were made and then we haven't made since? You know what I mean? You know, um, something happened around the early 1970s and people debate what that is. Like we don't know in terms of total factor productivity fell from about 2% a year to about half a percent a year, very, very suddenly and sharply around 1973 or so. And so people debate what, it, what was it that, that caused that? And I don't, I don't know. I, you know, I think in general, there's just sort of a mood of, you know, we need to slow down. We need to like install more guardrails and so on. We kind of lost the sense of urgency to move forward. Uh, and a lot of things, and and in terms of like what we what we did in that era, I mean, we 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 landed on the moon, right? We uh, yeah. so I used to work in supersonics, and we had Concorde, right? That first flight in in yeah. 1969, and today no Concorde, right? Like no no supersonic uh, airplane that you can buy a ticket on. So like literally have gone backwards in yeah. terms of that technology technological capability, and I think it's just sort of a lot about complacency, a lot about sense of urgency to to move faster. Mm and to sort of accept some risks, including social risks. Well, it'll be fascinating. It's obviously a very interesting time for the world. And who knows, maybe what's happening <laughs> out in the world will uh, give it a push or do the opposite. But we shall see. Yeah, exactly. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Eric, as well as Eli. 
um, for taking the time to talk. You know, I hope you guys enjoyed it. It's kind of like a, a mix, really, of the kind of nitty-gritty of boring but quite important regulation for kind of the social media world and really society going forward. And then, you know, just uh, more of this off-the-wall stuff that, you know, some of it in 10 years' time probably won't be off-the-wall at all. It'll be quite normal. We shall see which things those are. But anyhow, I hope you guys enjoyed it. Thank you, as ever, for tuning in. Thank you for taking the time to give a rating and review, because as you know, it helps other people find the show. You can also find my musings in The Times on the Times website at thetimes.co.uk. You can find me on Twitter at Danny Fortson. That is it for me this week. Stay safe, stay sane, and we'll talk soon. Bye-bye. with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson, a weekly series of in-depth interviews with high-profile figures examining how overcoming the challenges of their early lives shaped the people they've become. This week, rapper and songwriter Professor Green talks candidly about being raised on an East London council estate by his grandmother, his drug dealing, and how his father's suicide made him re-evaluate his own life. The one thing that I have in common with a lot of my, my friends who come from similarly disadvantaged backgrounds is that we all carry on. And at the end of the day, no matter what happens, if you're still alive, I don't think there's anything really left to do but carry on. Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson. Professor Green, in his own words, now available as a podcast. Listen on the Times Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. The train is now approaching. Junction at platform. Passengers, airport, please stay on board. Next stop, road station. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.